Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Blood. I'm a historian of military culture, the politics of war and violence. I hold a PhD and have published two books on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. A third about the war in Ukraine is planned for publication in the summer. Today, my guest is Professor Robin Pryor from the School of Humanities at the University of Adelaide, Australia. Robin has published extensively, and today we will be discussing his latest book, Conquer We Must, A Military History of Britain, 1914-45, to published by Yale University Press, 2022. This book is an important contribution to the study of Britain in the age of total war. There are 28 chapters, evenly divided between both world wars, with an interlude for 1919-1939 period. They are arranged by topics and year, for example, 1918 victory, strategic bombing, Singapore, and the end of the war, 1944-45. Robin, welcome. Can I ask you to give the listeners a summary of Conquer We Must? Given the military history title, perhaps you can explain whether it was written for an academic or popular readership, and it's standing in your overall body of work. Uh, good evening, uh, Philip, or, or good morning. Um, it, um, I always try to write for both audiences, uh, for an academic audience, uh, hence the footnotes, hence the uh, heavy emphasis on primary resources. Um, but I also write, like to write for the general public as well because I think there's a thirst for military history out there, readable military history, and um, so I'm attempting to do two things at once, uh, attract an academic audience uh, and the general readership as well. Um, where it stands in my overall work is, in some senses, it's a summary of what I've, everything I've written before in this book. I've written most of my work is on the First World War. Uh, the last book was on the Second World War. And this is a sort of summing up of where I think uh, my thinking is on 
Britain in both world wars. Did, can, can I just ask, before we get into the main body of the book, can I just ask, when you're synthesising the First War and the Great War, and I'm talking now in terms of actual writing, yeah. is that difficult? Yes, it's extremely difficult, um, and it gets worse for the Second World War, which I'll come to in a minute. But for the First World War, the, the paper is just enormous. Uh, if you look at the war diaries alone, uh, you've got a, a GHQ diary, but you've got an army diary, uh, the, the corps diaries, the divisional diaries, brigade diaries, battalion diaries. How on earth are you going to read just those, let alone the intelligence summaries, personal diaries, personal reminiscences, and all the rest, and distill it in a way that will be intelligible to the public, recognisable to uh, an academic audience who's used to uh, dealing in detailed military history. So the synthesis of this massive paper is very difficult indeed, I think. And, and, And too often briefly skated over. I mean, can, given the wealth of paper that you're referring to in the First World War, and obviously there's a huge amount, as I know from my own experience of the Second World War, have we still yet to discover the war? Or have we found it and now we're just filling in the bits? I don't think we'll ever discover it in that, in that sense. Um, for example... Um, if you read the uh, war diaries of, of uh, Normandy or, or the Somme or, or something, uh, you, you find a different battle almost every time you look at them. Um, different aspects uh, jump out at you from the page. Uh, so I, I don't think we're ever going to come to the end of that journey. And I think that's a good thing, not a, not a bad one. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that we can still have interpretations of new interpretations of things that we've we've quite understand. I mean, for example, I mean, in my day, I was brought up with Chester Wilmer on the Norman books, and now, yeah, we're, and he and to me, he's still a fantastic writer, and I, I, I have two copies of his of his book. the The thing is, I can read things where he's been perhaps replaced. But I think the overall drama that he creates is still useful. It's, it's extraordinarily useful. And, I mean, Chester Wilmot was the, the struggle for Europe was the book that uh, turned me on to military history. It was one of the first books in military history I read. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could make a living out of this stuff? Um, I was a farmer in the country at that point with... Uh, no, no more intention of making a career out of it than than anybody else. But uh, that was the book that did it for me. Uh, and I think there's still a lot of value in it. I come from a family of um, veterans. Um, before the Second World War, they were all uh, volunteer, original, you know, um, first-line soldiers. Uh, after the second, uh, after the first world war, most of them um, were conscripted, apart from one. Um, but all of them, both the first world war soldiers I met and the and the second world war soldiers, all <laughs> all suggested you have to read Chester Wilmot to understand their war. Uh, I just and, and it's interesting that we both kind of got raised 
by the same source. I, I read the book uh, eight times straight when I bought it. I've never done that with any other book. Um, I, as soon as I finished it, I reread it. I knew sections of it by heart. It was something about that book. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's, um, I think there's parts of it that we kind of look at and ignore immediately. I, I mean, what fascinates me is how he, how he starts a book on the Second World War by talking about the Cold War. And immediately, and immediately you have that moment of reflection being shown at you and thrown at you. And I, I find that, I, I just find his introduction to the way I'm going to write this book and I'm going to tell you this, that and the other, I just think it's marvellous. And of course his prose style is just incredible. It is wonderful. His papers in King's College are um, a treasure trove, which I have mined extensively. There are interviews there. Uh, there are papers that he's written, never been published. Uh, I have them. My my um, my grandmother used to listen to him. I don't know if you know. He gave um, radio broadcasts in UK, and my grandmother used to listen to him. Um, my grandfather was mostly out at that time because of um, he was a volunteer fireman, having smashed his hand before the war, so he missed it. But my grandmother used to live in. She just she just totally adored him. Yep, yep. His 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 broadcasts are uh, exceptionally good. Okay, if we can, I'd like to move on to the the main body of your book uh, and, and raise some questions there. Um, so here's a bit of old, uh, I don't know if you remember them, old O-level, A-level kind of questions, but condensing old two old historical arguments about the origins of the First World War and the Second World War into just two questions. Um so we'll start with the first. Why did Britain take up the continental commitment in the 20th century? Yeah, because it had to um, in, in 1914. It was uh, either a question of being involved in Europe or slipping to the, uh, to, into being a second-rate power almost immediately. Um, if Britain had allowed Germany to overrun uh, Western Europe, in particular Belgium and France, and obtain those industrial resources that would have made it the largest uh, power in the world, even at eclipsing the United States. Uh, the Germans could have built not only the largest, have, have the largest army in the world, they would have built the largest fleet. Um, that is the end of the Pax Britannica right there. And people like Edward Grey and Asquith and Churchill knew that. Um, they're not sleepwalking into anything, in other words. They're knowing exactly what they're doing, and what they're doing is defending Britain's national interest in 1914. Um, a, a, a simple proposition, I, I think. Um, Britain did not become engaged uh, in the First World War because of some uh, eruption in the Balkans. It became engaged in the First World War when Belgium uh, and France were invaded and its national interests were engaged. They knew that. A lot of people seem to have forgotten that since. Uh, but to me, it's crystal clear. There was no choice uh, in 1914 unless you wanted Britain to slip to a, a second or even a third-rate power. 
we do seem to have I don't know how to put it. We do seem to have these ideas, notions of, um, I discussed this with Spencer Jones before, lions led by donkeys and sleepwalkers. It, it, they all seem to come from that moment in, in 1914 when Britain changes and, and, and gets involved in Europe. But in your opinion, it couldn't let Europe be occupied by Germany. No, no. Um... For, for, with the Second World War and Hitler, this is a, a pretty uh, clear uh, argument. There is not much argument. Um, Hitler was there. He had to be got rid of. He had to be fought sooner or later. Um, Chamberlain chose to fight him over Poland. I think he should have chosen to fight him over Czechoslovakia. But the fact is even Chamberlain had decided that this man had to be fought. Um, for 1914... It's, uh, for some reason, not so clear-cut. The the Kaiser's regime overrunning Germany, in the words of one historian, would have merely led to the formation of a common market 80 years ahead of its time. Uh, To me, this is ludicrous. Uh, The Kaiser's Europe uh, would have had nothing in common uh, with the European Union. It was militarist. uh, In a certain sense, it was anti-Semitic. Um, it was a nasty regime, um, expansionist and all the rest. And it would have used those industrial resources of Western Europe uh, for its own purposes, uh, which would have done Britain and uh, I might say places like Australia no good uh, whatsoever. Can can I just ask a sub-question before we move on to the second? And that is, do you think the First World War leaders have not been granted the kudos of moral integrity that Churchill has received? I I absolutely think they haven't. Um, In particular, Edward Gray was a a figure of... Gray's enormous hostility. I mean, Paul Johnson in the 1970s wrote a book called The Offshore Islanders about how Britain had really never been a part of Europe. And his great villain was Edward Grey, who single-handed got Britain into the First World War, which, of course, Grey did nothing of the kind. The the Cabinet and the Parliament, I might add, got Britain into the uh, First World War. Um, But I think the the moral uh, certitude of people like Asquith, Grey, Churchill, Haldane uh, and others... Uh, has not been fully recognised. No, I agree with you. Okay. Um, the the second question I had to this is, um, and it literally flows from how we've just discussed that, uh, that first one is, did the British political elites uh, institutionalise hostility towards Germany? Not at all. Uh, not at all. There is the Haldane mission, for example, to uh, Germany in, in uh, 1912 where he tries to come to an agreement with them over uh, fleet building. Uh, Why are you building dreadnoughts? Uh, Why are you building two-thirds of the dreadnoughts you need to defeat us? It's purposeless, and we will always outbuild you. Let's come to an arrangement. Let's come to some understanding about this. Uh, So that was 1912, and the Germans could have taken that up. Uh, They chose not to. They chose, in fact, to build more dreadnoughts. Uh, so, so far from the political elite antagon- being antagonistic to Germany, 
there was a certain sense of that during the South African war uh, where the Kaisers telegrammed to Kruger and so on, but that had long long been forgotten. Uh, Britain could have come to an arrangement with Germany as easily as it had with France uh, in 1904. Remember that in 1898, France and Britain almost went to war over Fashoda, an obscure place in the Sudan. Yet in 1904, they've signed an entente. Um, the Liberal government has signed an agreement with, with Tsarist Russia in 1907. There was nothing that's, that said that a similar deal couldn't have been struck with Germany. If in, they in my re- in, sorry, in my reading of Delbruck, I, I noticed that he was very um, interested in what Haldane was trying to do in 1912. Um, I find the German interpretation is um, Delbruck wants to know, wants to understand, wants to see if there is a change of direction or possibility of change of direction. And he seems to be complaining that the German military elites are fixated in going in a different direction. Yes. Um, I mean, their view was we'll build uh, the amount of dreadnoughts and so on that we want to build. Well, fine, except the reaction of, of Britain to that must be to build, build more. Uh, it's, it's got to be. Um, Churchill is right in the sense of saying, for you, the fleet is a luxury. For, our, for us, it's a necessity. Uh, that's what our power relies on. Yours doesn't. So stop it. <laughs> but they, they won't. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so if we can move from the cultural to the strategic, I'd like to ask, from yeah. writing Conquer We Must... To what extent did British strategic thinking and policy uh, remain consistent across both world wars? Pretty, pretty consistent. Um, the, the one aim was to defeat the aggressor, um, and and you did that where you could. Uh, in the First World War, it was uh, largely on the Western Front. Um, if we forget the slight diversion of attention to a place called Gallipoli in 1915. Um, in the Second World War, it was the same, except uh, fighting Germany and Europe didn't last all that long in 1940, uh, so it had to be fought by other means, and it had to be fought where Britain could fight it, which from 1940 to 42 was North Africa and almost nowhere else in the world. Um, this wasn't a peripheral strategy. This was a continuation of the war by uh, the only methods Britain had. So I think their strategy is pretty consistent over both world wars with a couple of uh, uh, blimps, uh, glitches along the way. Right. Um, I'm not going to elaborate. I think we should move on. And and the one area that I'd like to investigate from one of your chapters was on the bombing, uh, Churchill on bombing. On page 550 from 1940, he said, the Navy can lose us the war, but only the Air Force can win it. On page 558 in 1941, he said, it is very disputable whether bombing by itself will be a decisive factor in the present war. Now, given those two contrasting opinions, all very close to each other, I wondered does the inconsistency reveal Churchill's deeper discomfort for bombing? Uh, no, I don't think it does. It, it reveals his discomfort with not being able to hit anything. Um, 
this, this is the problem. In, 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 90, in 1940, uh, the British seem to think they have this fearsome weapon um, and they talk about it in, in the Chamberlain Cabinet. Will they unleash the bomber force? In fact, the bomber force in 1940 is a pathetic weapon um, in, in, in a couple of ways. The bomb loads are very small. Uh, these are two-engine bombers, uh, and they can't find anything. Uh, in particular, they can't find anything at night, um, which is the only time in 1940 that they can fly safely. Their speeds are half those of that of the Messerschmitts and, and the other German fighters. So um, so far from unleashing a formidable force, um, it, it, it's rather a dead dog in 1940. Um, Churchill has been promised by various bomber commanders that they will, uh, one after the other, destroy German industry, destroy their oil installations, cripple their railways and do various things like that. Um, they have done, in 90, by 1941, none of the above. Um, they can't even hit Cologne. Uh, let alone a, an oil institution, an oil refinery or an industrial institution in Cologne. So it's rather a disillusionment with Bomber Command, which doesn't mean, of course, that Churchill's giving up on Bomber Command. Uh, he just wants them to get their act together and start bombing accurately. Uh, he knows, I think, by 41, that this is not going to win the war, unlike Harris, unlike... Uh, portal. Uh, but he knows also that from 41, 42 and into the future, it is possibly the only way the war can be brought home to Germany. It's all Britain's got. And especially after the invasion of the Soviet Union, he has to show that Stalin, that Britain is willing. Uh, and how, how best he can do it is by using uh, bomber command. Going back to the strategic question, do you think, therefore, that he is already replacing in his mind um, naval tradition for futuristic bombing strategy? Um, I think he thinks bombing is what Britain can do. Uh, how can Britain hurt Germany? They, after all, are at war. Um, uh, they can hurt them a little bit in the Western Desert. Uh, there are a few divisions there. Uh, the blockade is, is gone uh, as a weapon uh, by 41. Um, it's, it's finished. Naval strategy will not bring Germany down. Uh, the army is only tip, uh, nibbling away at the peripheries. What else has he got but Bomber Command? Uh, does he think it's going to win the war? Certainly not. Um, he is infuriated by papers from Portal and Harris in particular, which says, which say, leave it to us, leave it to Bomber Command. There is no need to raise large armies in Britain. We'll win the war. He is furious with those, and his responses are acerbic. Um, he knows that's not going to be the way the war is won from, I think, from 1941 on, and uh, yet. Uh, bomber Command is the only way that Germany can be hurt. Okay. And, uh, 
entirely agree with you in a lot of what you're saying there. So going on then from that, do you think he abandoned Bomber Command in 1945 because of, of what's happened in those previous times rather than a changing opinion? He's, he he's kind of... There's no doubt there's an unease after Dresden uh, with, with Churchill. He probably thinks it's a city too far, uh, though, of course, uh, the ultimate authorization for it came from him, uh, as Portal is very quick to point out uh, to him uh, when he rather blames Portal for the, for the, the Dresden episode. Um, he's, by February 45, the war is going to be won, and it's going to be won on land, and there's no doubt about that. And I think Churchill is saying now is the time to ease up on the bombing, um, perhaps not quite realising that what he was authorising up until then was just destroying one German city after another for not much gain, although you can argue, I think, about Dresden. You can argue that it was a genuine target, one required by the Soviets to be bombed, uh, and therefore uh, it was bombed. But there's not much left after Dresden to bomb. No, of course, we remember Fortsheim and Wurzburg, which were hard to justify, really, the, the scale of destruction that was um, imposed on those cities. But the question I'd ask you then, just the sub-question, would be, do you think already by the time he's abandoned, um, well, not so much abandoned, but um put off by the city too far he's already working his political manifesto for the coming election um i doubt it uh because i think he thinks he's going to win it anyway uh, <laughs> uh, i mean this this is one of the greatest shocks to 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 him ever delivered i think uh, the 1945 uh result uh so i'm i'm not sure he's thinking uh that far he's thinking a bit uh on on uh, the lines of we must have a beverage plan um, and the Conservatives come up with a, uh, a, a, a sort of poor man's social security plan of their own in 1944. But I, I don't think this is intruding into his military thinking at all, no. Okay, okay. So we'll move on. Um, and you, you've mentioned naval blockade, but I'd like to look at it from a different perspective. Um, yeah. Once Churchill realised naval blockade could not work against Nazi-occupied uh, Europe, did he consciously turn his back on naval strategy beyond Suez? Uh, it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I mean, the problem for Britain with naval strategy is that Britain was flat chat in the First World War facing one naval power, one important naval power, Germany. They had to have most of their fleet in the North Sea and they had to have uh, the Australians escorted across the Indian Ocean uh, by the Japanese uh, Navy uh, in 1914 because there were no British capital ships available then. This was the time of the Battle of the Falklands when, when Britain was running, running short uh, of superiority in the North Sea. By, in the Second World War, uh, by after Pearl Harbor, Britain has three, um, or at least two and a half, first-class naval powers to deal with. Um, it must look after home waters, above all, 
um, it is committed to a large extent in the Mediterranean before Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. So what you've got for the Far East, uh, what you've got for Singapore is what's left over. And what's left over is much less than anybody up until that time thought because they thought they wouldn't be facing three enemies. If they counted in Japan, uh, they often counted out Italy, um, thinking that Italy would uh, do what it did in the First World War, some kind of neutrality. Um, Italy doesn't do that, so Britain has got an impossible task. What's sent to Singapore in 1942 is, is what they've got left, um, and it's not much. I don't think it's much a matter of abandoning naval strategy. It's, it's trying to make do and mend, if you like, with, with, the, with the ships they've got, which it, it, it are not sufficient. Just as a matter of interest, and just digressing for a minute, given your position, do you, do you see America in a similar dilemma between the Pacific and the Atlantic, given the war that's going on in Ukraine at the minute? With two fleets, one aiming at China and one, one trying to protect the Atlantic. Yeah, I, 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 it's not as dire uh, for the Americans. Um, they have missiles, um, after all. Um, but it, it, So it's not as dire, but it's not a comfortable situation for them, especially with the growth of the Chinese Navy. Yeah, it's interesting that Britain has confronted that kind of scenario before um, but we don't appear to have you know that many analogies in the in the scholarship turning up and saying well you know America's facing a dilemma that Britain had to face back in the first world war and then later in the second world war uh, yeah it's a bit interesting, interesting thing. Yeah. naval history has seemed to have got you know a bit lost <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at Taiwan, Taiwan from the from the point of view of the Singapore naval base. Um, <laughs> is it America, Singapore? I, I, uh, I hope not. <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, interesting point. Yeah, it it, it it's um, that could be very difficult for everybody. I mean, the, you know, China and um, America lock horns. Anyway, uh, going back to the past. Um, I'd like to look at Normandy, and in this regard, I'm talking about the closing of the Falaise Pocket in August 1944 as the culmination of Montgomery's planning and conduct of the Normandy campaign. The question I'd like to ask you is, how do you explain British strategy afterwards? After after Falaise? After Falaise, yeah, after that great victory. Yeah. He, Montgomery... Uh, and Churchill and Alan Brooke are trying to end the war uh, and they're trying to end it quickly. Um, two divisions of the British Army have already been broken up uh, by now um, and more are on the cards. Um, is that because of manpower shortages? Just to yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. Britain is running out of uh, uh, running out of people. Uh, if they can. Put any more in the army, they will deindustrialize that army. So the choices are not brilliant. Um, and the sooner the war is over for Britain, the better. Um, the Americans don't quite see it that way. Uh, Eisenhower's strategy of the broad front is steady, 
Certainly, it's unimaginative, absolutely, but it's certain. Um, where Montgomery's single thrust strategy has elements of risk in it, not normally associated with Montgomery. Uh, but I think uh, it, you know, Montgomery is not insensitive to the political imperatives to end the war. Do you think Britain is somehow unable to negotiate, even though Montgomery has put together this incredible victory in Normandy, Britain is no longer in a position to negotiate on strategy on an equal basis with America? Absolutely not, no. It's gone. It's gone. Uh, British, uh, British supremacy, in a sense, goes in the Mediterranean, uh, as I say in my book. Uh, at one point, they wished to be involved in the eastern Mediterranean, um, the Dodecanese, Greece, um, that sort of thing. And it's not just Churchill, uh, by the way, that's involved here. Uh, Alan Brooke is fiddling around with, a, with a, a Greece strategy. There's even talk of forcing the Dardanelles um, and getting help to Russia by somehow bringing in Turkey as though forcing the Dardanelles is going to do anything to bring in Turkey. But there is an issue there where Britain pushes very, very hard. Churchill, in my book, I say, writes to Roosevelt, almost begging him for the facilities to do the Eastern Mediterranean strategy. And Roosevelt turns him down flatly, bluntly and reasonably rudely. Um, it's at that point in 1943 that Britain has ceased to be the major player in the Western Alliance. The Americans are now going to do what they want to do. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Americans are not entirely uh, foolish. Uh, they accept Montgomery as ground commander in Normandy because they have no one of his stature, no one with the experience of fighting the Germans, and frankly, no one they're willing to trust with that job. Uh, so Britain creeps back a bit, if we can say, into strategic uh, contention here by having the ground commander in Normandy and basically fighting the, the campaign according to his plan. Uh, after Normandy, when he's done the job, uh, American superiority reasserts itself. But it's there from 1943. Do you think, therefore, then, and I know it's a contentious issue, um, that the attempt to cross the Rhine at Arnhem was the bridge too far? Or was it... Or was actually... Eisenhower saying, well, if it comes off, we're going to win. And if it doesn't come off, my strategy takes over anyway. Yeah, I think it's a bit of that. Again, it's, it's a reassertion by Montgomery, Brooke and others to try and end the war uh, quickly. And uh, I, my own view is it was extraordinarily risky, but worth the risk. I mean, it almost worked. Um, and if it had, who knows what might have happened. Um, it didn't work, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't worth trying. It was certainly uh, an imaginative idea uh, from Montgomery, um, and it probably was a bridge too far, but um, 
worth a shot. If you could have ended the war in December '44, uh, Britain would have been in a much better position than it was in May '45. Okay. Um, let us move on. On page 679, Conquer We Must, you observe there are two general views of the wars. In the First World War, the politicians let the military go their own way, you say. In the Second World War, Churchill interfered too much. You then conclude, and I'm going to quote you directly, it is possible now to say both these views are caricatures while containing some elements of truth. My question to you is, are they caricatures and truths, or are they myths? Um, I, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, that. Um, they're, they're mythic caricatures, perhaps, or... Um, I mean, in the First World War, I think our views of politicians and the generals are shaped uh, largely by the Solomon Passchendaele. Uh, where you see the military going their own way, um, apparently untrammeled by uh, political considerations and producing two pretty disastrous campaigns. The fact is, however, that right from the beginning, politicians interfered in the First World War. Uh, Sir John French, for example, wants to bring the BEF out of the line just before the Battle of the Marne to have a rest um, he is told in no uncertain terms by the cabinet he will stay in the line and the BEF will do as Joff wants it to do. Uh, that is a direct political uh, intervention in the military in 1914. Then, of course, in 1915, you have the most spectacular uh, civilian intervention of, of either world war, and that is the Dardanelles campaign followed by Gallipoli. Uh, where the politicians push this, uh, knowing, uh, and almost all of them know, that their naval advisers in particular, Jackie Fisher, is against it. Um, he's not in favour of it at all. Um, Churchill knows it, Asquith knows it, Gray knows it, almost the entire cabinet know it, um, and yet they overrule him. This is a politician's war, and it's setting up a separate front. This is unparalleled in both world wars for civilian interference uh, in, 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 in strategy. Then, however, we come to the Solomon Passchendaele, where despite the fact that Lloyd George now occupies more important positions as Minister of War and uh, then as Prime Minister, uh, the military do go their own way. Lloyd George hates them for it, uh, but he won't... Uh, stop them. I mean, the argument is often uh, framed in this way, that why didn't he sack Sir Douglas Haig? It's not a matter of sacking Sir Douglas Haig. Um, you don't have to sack him. Tell him to stop. Uh, tell him to stop at the Somme. He asks for permission at the Somme in August. Uh, should he go on uh, attacking? And the Cabinet actually never answer him. And he takes that as meaning, yes, which is pretty reasonable on his part. Um, Passchendaele the same. Uh, Lloyd George sets up a war policy committee, particularly to watch Hague, um, and yet they go their own way again. And at one point, Lloyd George tells this body that w we will reassemble this body in three weeks' time 
and you will see that I am right, that Haig is wasting the British Army. I mean, the next sentence you expect to be, if only I was Prime Minister, I could stop him. But wait a minute, you are Prime Minister. <laughs> uh, don't sack him, stop him um, from attacking. And, and that's not done. Um, so in, in, then in 1918, I think we get another reassertion of civilian authority where Haig asks for 1.3 million men, I think it is, and is given 380,000 and told to get on with it. Uh, Lloyd George is not giving him those men. Those men are staying in industry in Britain uh, to produce tanks and aircraft and ships and so on, and Haig has got to fight the war without them. And so he's got to fight the war smarter. And in my book, uh, Conquer We Must, I contend that this partly leads to the replacement of men uh, by machines in the uh, uh, Amiens offensive and in later ones uh, where the British are using either tanks or more uh, readily artillery in unprecedented amounts to batter their way through the German lines. Uh, So civilian interference in the First World War comes and goes, but it's there. And I think people looking at it, including me in an earlier phase of my career, rather overlooked that. It's interesting from reading on the German side of the First World War, we we often see Materialschlacht or, you know, um, equipment war, um, machine war. And um, the the Germans are forever complaining that they're fighting against all this equipment and gear and they don't have the same. They come up with stormtrooper tactics, which is a bit of a shock for for the British and American, uh, British and French. Um, do you think by using machinery, the British soldiers were less well trained? I mean, I'm only in a question at the end of the war. No, I don't think so. I think they were starting to be quite well trained. Um, uh, uh, I mean, there were commanders like Ivor Maxey. Um, Curry, dare I mention Monash, uh, but others as well, Delisle, plenty of British Corps commanders here as well that were taking training a lot more seriously uh, after Passchendaele than they'd ever done before. And I think the uh, infantry tactics uh, used at Amiens are the equal of anything the Germans did uh, and they're more realistic. I mean, the problem with stormtroop tactics is that you're trying to win the war by infantry alone. Uh, This is madness uh, in an age of machine war. You're telling the infantry, uh, I mean, Ludendorff's famous statement, I hack a hole, the rest followed. Uh, He hacked a hole all right and nothing followed uh, because the infantry sooner or later would outrun their fire support uh, and be slaughtered. That is something the British are very keen not to do in their offensives in 1918. They never outrun their fire support uh, from Amiens on. Um, always the artillery is there in vast numbers uh, at the Hindenburg line to almost sweep them through the line on itself. I mean, the 46th North Midland Division doesn't suddenly become the greatest division of all time in 1918. It is swept by an unprecedented storm of artillery across the Hindenburg Line. Um, So the British are using tactics that are appropriate 
to the time. Um, they will not go beyond the level uh, at which they can be supported by firepower. Can, can I just go back to the, 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 the question that we're talking about here with myths and, and characters and what have you? Um, if you took your conclusion, I'm talking now just about how you would write thing, how you would write this book. If you took your conclusion and started with it, would you have written a different book? If sorry, if I'd taken which, if you'd have taken your conclusion that you've got these two kinds of wars where the civilians are more involved in the First World War and Churchill's dominating the Second World War, would you have written a different book? I know it's unfair. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's quite quite a reasonable question. Uh, look, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I'm I'm I wasn't sure to begin with what kind of book I was writing. Um, I wanted to write the first chapter largely to refute the Sleepwalker theory, so that's why that's there. Um, but I also wanted to say, hey, Britain got into the First World War without any military people being involved at all in decision-making. This was a civilian-only uh, uh, affair. And Britain uh, goes away from civilian-only control at its peril, 1916-1917. Um, whether I'd have written a different book, um, look, I'd probably write a different book now. Um, I mean, you know how it is. Uh, you, you, you write it, you, you fling it about to the public, uh, and you, you hope that uh, they approve of it. But if you were to write the, sit down and say, let me write that book again, um, there might be things you'd do differently. I, I just don't know. Given your place of work is Australia... <laughs> Yeah. Do you find it challenging to teach Australian students British military history? Um, when I was at the, the Defence Academy, uh, which was run by a university in Australia, um, the answer was no, not at all. Um, they lapped it up. Sorry for the interruption. We in Germany have an air raid warning at this time, and they occasionally go off, and we're having one now. Yep. And it's the same air raid sounds that you would have heard in 1940s. Well, where actually are, are you in Arkan at the moment? Or? I'm in Arkan at the moment, yeah. yeah You're yeah, speaking yeah, directly yeah. to the town. Uh, we've got a, uh, it's a national air raid warning of sound. And okay. I can assure you, all those poor old people who are, suffer from dementia, who've been in, yes. in old people's homes, um, they're remembering what happened. God. And I can assure you now, they're running under the, they're diving under yeah. the tables, having yeah. panic attacks. Yeah, terrible. Uh, oh, so, so we've got a what? See, it's just closed off. Uh, so I'm sorry about the intrusion. I'll try and make a note of it, uh, so um, people can deal with it. The phone still. See, I get a personal message too that the phone is being attacked. So you never expected that, hey? Uh, no. <laughs> Return of Bomber Harris. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he's not a popular dude over here for many reasons. Arkham was slammed 173 times and the air raid alarms went off 1,079 times during the duration of the war. Uh, so the people were uh, traumatised, to say the least. So I'm sorry about the introduction. 
intrusion, sorry. I, I've made a note, and it's up to Marshall to decide whether, whether he's going to keep the war in or we're going to have it cut out. So I've kept it recording. So um, let's move on. General questions in regard to British military history. Um, and you've mentioned a few critiques here, so I want to just... I was thinking more of uh, the military historians, the the stop military historians of our earlier days. Uh, through your body of work, there's been critique of well-known writers and scholars, notably Sir Basil Little Hart and John Keegan. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Do you think their visions of war are now obsolete? I think their hearts were always obsolete, (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't mean I wasn't a great fan of little hearts. I was. Um, I was. Uh, I started my military history career thinking that Strategy of the Indirect Approach was the greatest book I'd ever read and that Gallipoli was the great uh, missed opportunity of the First World War. Um, so I was uh, very pro uh, Basil Little Hart. Um, the truth slowly dawned on me that... Uh, yeah, this this strategy of hitting them where they ain't. Uh, sooner or later, you've got to hit them where they are, um, as U.S. Grant knew full well, and um, that his strategy was rather a rationalisation uh, for what had happened and a, uh, a, a method of winning the war on the cheap uh, without involving uh, being involved in the bloodbath on the on the Western Front. I mean, my own view changed to the extent that while acknowledging the bloodbath on the Western Front, I thought the war there could could have been fought better and differently, um, not somewhere else. So um, I, I I rather went off B.H. Little Hart as a strategist. He, he could certainly write, though. Um, uh, Keegan... Um, not so much. I I, I, I like face of battle. Um, uh, I, he probably never wrote anything as good, but if most of us could write something that good, we wouldn't bother writing anything else. Um, I thought I thought his last book on the, on the war um, perhaps demonstrated more than anything that he wasn't a well man. Um, it, it's a strange book which mainly concentrates on 1914-15, which I think he was, uh, he, he was fine when he was writing that and then had to rush uh, to finish it. So I've got a great deal more sympathy with Keegan as a person than I, I once had, I think. Well, I knew John Keegan through um, Richard Holmes, who was the same as my supervisor. So I, I attended many um, talks and a couple of... John's book launches. Um, when I when I first went to university in seventy eight, the Keegan's book Face of Battle was um, 
standard reading for all three years. Um, I was doing politics and strategic studies and such like. And um, all of the various different parts of that qualification accept it. Hey, we're going to have another air raid alarm. Okay, enough. Second one. <laughs> so I'll make a note. 51. Uh, I'm not going to pause it. I'm going to carry on going. Is it is it too bad for you at the moment? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. But the reason why we had extra noise here was because all the phones suddenly started and I've now switched uh, them all off put them in the yeah. kitchen. Okay. Um, so, okay. So it's in the background and yeah, we know it's, it's, it's not, not an option. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, I've, I've thought face of battle and, and to this day I still think it's a very important book and I, I've used it for my own research my, my concern with with what happened with John Keegan was when he was kind of elevated as, as Britain's finest military historian it seemed to lead him to go into various areas where perhaps he shouldn't um, I remember attending a talk about his book on the American Civil War and I was very concerned. And then he gave the brief lectures and I thought, um, it's not happening. It, it's not, something's missing. And then I think he wrote a book on the history of warfare where he went back into prehistoric times. And I, yeah, I, I, I just thought it, I thought from his, from that face of battle, he went in too many directions rather than, focusing further in what he had done. I think uh, he Basil did. Was... I mean, yeah. Oh, he's writing on the Admiralty at, at one point, Keegan. And I didn't think he had anything to tell us about the Admiralty, um, whereas I think I agree with you on the face of battle as well. It still has something to say to us, uh, no doubt. When I was growing up in Manchester on, on our black and white television, we used to see Basil Littlehart quite often. Uh, he ran a series of television programs on war and strategy and battles. Um, it's quite interesting, really. You'd have Horrocks and Littleheart and all of these great names that, you know, now passed. And they were regulars, um, regulars on the quality of TV back in those days. And with the Vietnam, with the Vietnam War going on in the background, um, it, it was quite... A, an interesting contrast. I suppose it's had an effect on me ever since. You know, looking, I mean, looking at two ways at the same time. I can, I, I can remember Montgomery's programs on television. Um, the BBC apparently wiped them. Um, uh, extraordinary thing. Hmm? One survived. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for my sins, I was introduced to him in 1967. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, I, we, we went to London and I met two people who remained kind of fit, lodged in my mind. One was Noble Franklin. Yes, I met him. And he, he, he showed me around the nose cone of the Lancaster bomber, which was at the Imperial War Museum then. And he was fascinating and very nice man. <laughs> Montgomery, I was pushed in front of Montgomery basically, and he said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Who I was." And he said, "What do you know of me?" And I said, "My one of my well, several of my great uncles fought for you, and one of them thought you were a great general." 
And he said, <laughs> he said well, and my mum remind, reminds me of this quite often. She said, um, he, he said, uh, so what division was one of your uncles in? And I said, the Seventh Armoured. And he said, they were the best division ever. And, you know, and we talked a bit more and off he went. Um, what interested me is just how many divisions were the best divisions in the war that he, you know, praised. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yeah, 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 the one he was speaking to, I think, yeah. Yeah, but a fascinating character, I think, um, to, come, to come out of my book. I mean, I, I went into the book fascinated by Montgomery, but I came out even more fascinated by him, I think, in the end. Um, I, I think he's an attritional general um, who never dared say the word, of course. Um, if well, you'd I, said, I'm, going to, I'm going to shift a, que a, a question up and, and come down on another one, uh, because now we mention him and said you throughout your work you've examined the performance of national leaders and ground commanders. And um, we, I was going to ask you, how did you approach Field Marshal Haig Chateau General, architect of victory. And the counter-question to that was, Field Marshal Montgomery achieved greater victories with fewer casualties, but remains the bogeyman of academia. Is it time to restore his reputation? So perhaps, whichever, but I think now we've drifted into that this, that discussion that I was going to put forward, maybe we could just continue it, because I think it's really quite interesting. Well, we'll start with Haig. Um, my... my um affair with uh, Field Marshal Haig has been a various one. Um, he's far from a donkey. He's not a shadow general. He got out among his, uh, I think I counted, 220 visits to uh, forward units uh, during the Battle of the Somme, um, which in a sense makes him a worse general than I thought. Uh, <laughs> I'll explain why in a minute. But uh, he is not a donkey. He's not a shadow general. He's, he thinks uh, about what he has to do. Um, he is a, not a technophobe. He will take any artillery that Lloyd George likes to manufacture for him and use it. He welcomes the tank. Um, these are big things in a general, uh, especially the tank. Uh, a new weapon entirely, which he welcomes and tries to use to the best of his ability. Uh, but there's a problem uh, with Sir Douglas Haig, and, and that is uh, almost the opposite, I think, of what people think of him. He has far too much imagination, um, far too much. He is the last, if you will, of the romantic generals um, he is going to win this war um, by employing what machines he can, um, artillery and, and a tank, but he's going to win this war uh, by uh, the breakthrough battle, by the great cavalry sweep. There are times at the Somme uh, uh, before the 1st of July, uh, July the 14th, September the 15th, and in October, where he masses the cavalry for what's going to be a war-winning, or war-shortening at least, operation. Uh, what he does uh, each time he does that is spread his artillery resources so thinly that they cannot subdue the line in front of them. 
let alone the lines behind that he is firing at. Um, therefore, every enterprise he embarks on is, in that sense, doomed to failure while he keeps doing that. And, of course, the person who realised, first of all, the importance of artillery on the Western Front and how to deal, how to use it to deal with trenches is none other than Sir Douglas Haig uh, at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle on the 10th of March um, 1915. Uh, it's Haig who does this, the artillery calculations uh, and along with Rawlinson works out how many guns they need, how many yards of front that will uh, enable them to capture all this stuff is there. It's Haig. So he is, he can be a thinking man, a thinking general. Uh, but even at Neuve Chapelle, the cavalry is massed. The breakthrough must happen. So when the uh, artillery does its job, batters down the front German line, Haig spends the next four or five days at great cost trying to batter his way through with either the infantry or the cavalry or both. Often the cavalry can't get near the front, so they're, they're okay. Um, but uh, And, of course, he does the same thing at the Somme. Um, when Rawlinson produces him a plan which says we can take the German front line but nothing else with the artillery, Haig says, that's no good. Uh, we won't win the war that way. Um We've got to take the three German lines and I will spread my artillery resources so that we bombard three German positions, meaning they don't have enough artillery uh, to uh, subdue the first one. Uh, so uh, Haig is a complicated character. Um, what about 1918, I hear you cry, um, the war-winning campaign from Amiens on? Um, I'm not sure that that had much to do uh, with Sir Douglas Haig. I think it had more to do with uh, people like Rawlinson, uh, uh, corps commander, the army commanders like uh, Rawlinson, um, who had at last uh, issued the deathless statement, now we are running out of men, we have to turn to machines. But at least he did turn to machines and he has uh, competent subordinates uh, in the form of uh, Delisle, uh, Curry, uh, and Monash uh, to help him uh, plan his battles uh, appropriately. There is no more uh, enormous artillery bombardments that go back miles and leave the front troops uh, bare uh, to the enemy. Now, um, as we said before, the British are not pushed beyond the line that the artillery can't reach. It's nothing to do with the tank. It's the artillery in 1918 uh, that comes uh, to bear. And Haig enables all this to happen. He steps back, perhaps, from his role in planning the Somme. He is not uh, a planner at Amiens in the same detail as he is in 1916, uh, by no means. So perhaps he's learnt something as well. Uh, so my feelings about Sir Douglas Haig are ambivalent uh, but uh, slightly hostile in that he let the Somme go on far too long and then he followed by letting Third Epoch Passchendaele go on far too long as well at great cost. 
and in 1917, at great danger, the British Army was the last best army on the Western Front. Uh, the French uh, had sunk into uh, collective indiscipline. The Americans hadn't uh, quite arrived. The Russians were out. Uh, it was the British Army that was the key factor uh, from 1917 really till the end of the war. And Haig was casting it away at Passchendaele. Um, he uh, really uh, deserves uh, a great deal of criticism for that. Uh, but then uh, I suppose we should perhaps look at him in 1918 and say, well, he enabled the methods that finally win this war. So that's my, that's my summing up of Sir Douglas Hay. Uh, moving on to Montgomery. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to say too much because I come, I, I come from a family that absolutely hated him with a passion. And that's simply because of the casualties in the family. Well, the first day of the Somme is inexcusable. It, it, it really is inexcusable. Everything told him this was going to be a disaster before it happened. His intelligence service was telling him that. His patrols were telling him that. His, they were telling him that the dugouts had not been destroyed, that the German wire in many places was still intact, uh, and yet it goes ahead at such an appalling cost. For me, being brought up in the sixties, there was um, there was a very much a different cultural attitude, and I don't actually recall anybody talking about lions led by donkeys because none of my people would have ever have read anything by Alan Clark or any any of his like, um, simply because he, he just wouldn't. Um, he was never liked anyway. Um, we're not very interested, um, but. The, the 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 feeling was that there was such gross incompetence at certain key moments um, that the the professional soldiers in the family were just appalled, and that legacy of that memory um, was continued into the family, and so I you know. Okay, I might have fun with the guys on Twitter saying, you know, lions and donkeys and what have you. Um, but he, all, he, he he's remained lodged in my memory as somebody who represents gross incompetence and fairly callous with human lives. Um, you know, th th this is a trait that goes into the German army, um, which I see both in the First World War and the Second World War. And this attitude towards human beings as to be just dispensed with for the greater glory that for me is the big contrast with Montgomery because he's going a very different way and I'm not sure that all the generals of the first world war were the same elk as Haig and you know he I have to be honest um, the guy revolts me I, there's nothing I, I tried to read John Terrain's book with some kind of objectivity, and I just, no, it's never going to happen. And I accept that I was socialised by a family that suffered grievous grievous damage through uh, dead and wounded soldiers in the family, that, and they died in such 
horrible ways. Um, you know, long after the war, having suffered from being gassed, and that that memory came into the family. And where we were in Manchester, the Accrington, the Accrington, Accrington, Accrington yeah, Accrington Pals, and the Salford Pals. The, these were regiments or battalions and, um, that had a huge impact on our memory of the war and uh, you know and I'll, I'll go back <laughs> I'll go back to the point where there's the black and white film by the BBC and there's the moment when they show the Battle of the Somme and there's the lads Lancashire lads in the trench there and I do actually recall my grandparents looking for my great uncle yeah, yeah, God. Um, oh. he, he died in August, um, yeah. the days after I was after my birthday. So, of course, whenever I whenever I was growing up, there was always somebody saying, "Well, how old would Tom be now?" And so you, you're kind of socialised into war death, and um, that's another reason why I kind of been always very cautious about approaching the the First World War, because I don't have entire objectivity, as you should as a, you know, as an academic historian. I accept the guilt. That's my fault. Um, nothing I can do about it, but I will never see Hague as anything but, uh, you know, somebody well, I, I can't. I, I should enter a caveat with my stuff on Hague. A lot of, or some people think uh, I don't approve of Sir Douglas Hague because I'm an Australian. <laughs> I don't. I don't approve of him because he's incompetent. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's it. It's got nothing to do with being an Australian. Um looking looking at the first day of the song, uh, how can you be anything other than appalled by what's happening there? Uh, well, I unstitched the, the the attack that my my uncles and family had always been in the Manchester regiment and um th- there was this attack on the twenty 20- 9th, 30th of um, August, uh, 1916, round, during when the attacks are taking place. And it, it struck me that, first of all, the number of men who were missing outweighed the normal casualties. But the, the men who were wounded were dispersed all over the place. And it, and it's in various different field hospitals, including a French field hospital. And it struck me, they're so they're so lost in the battle. They're all over the place. And nobody seems to know what they're doing, and it and and it was just badly managed. No officers were involved. It was NCOs running a battle or a raid on their own um, in the fog. Poor use of artillery. The the whole thing just read. The more you deconstructed it, the more it thought, oh my god. You know the stories about how incompetent this blow was is even worse. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's quite interesting because when people talk about the song, they often say, "Ah, oh, but you're you're uh, you're concentrating on the first day." Um, when Trevor Wilson and I wrote our book on the song, we actually did some calculations of casualties after the first of July. And we found that they were no different in percentages than the 1st of July. In other words, 50% casualties was the norm. It, the first day wasn't unusual as, as far as that goes. It kept on happening. It kept on happening right through July. It kept on happening in August. It kept on happening in September and October. 
the 50% casualty rate. It's just that unlike the first day, there aren't the numbers involved that there were on the first day, which makes that 60,000, 20,000 figures so awful. These are lower casualty figures, but as a percentage of those involved in the action, they're not, they're not lower at all. Um, they're exactly the same. So if we're looking at competence improving after the first day of the SOM, it actually doesn't. It stays the same. Um, usually narrow front attacks, um, allowing the Germans to concentrate their own, their own artillery against a narrow front of men trying to capture this trench or that trench. The battle almost gets out of hand in this period. In fact, even Haig realises that. He says to Rawlinson at one point, there is something wanting in the methods you are employing. Uh, there certainly are. <laughs> There's a lot wrong with the methods uh, that Rawlinson is employing. But having said that, Haig takes no further action. He doesn't sack Rawlinson. He doesn't uh, impose a new system on Rawlinson. He doesn't say, don't keep stop carrying out these narrow front attacks, attack on a wider front or wait until you've got more artillery or so on. He does nothing at all. So the battle just keeps going, uh, and it is almost beyond uh, human agency uh, in August and September. I, I, I'll be fair. Quite a few guys have said to me, um, "There's this learning curve in the," and and I've in discussions with Spencer, I um, I kind of accepted and said, "Fine, you know, if they've done the research, who am I to argue if it's there and it exists?" But I did ask some. Uh, first world scholars, how do you justify a learning curve where you bounce from the Somme to Passchendaele or Ypres? Um, and, and I don't, and, you know, it's very difficult for somebody from, uh, you know, from that kind of background to rationalise that as, as being anything more than what we've already seen. The learning, curve, the learning curve is, 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 is well, it, it's so all over the place. There is no learning curve. I mean, as I was saying about Nerve Chappelle, they seem to have learnt how to do their artillery calculations. If you've got this many guns and that much front to attack, how many shells do you need to fire to destroy the trenches? They do that calculation. They never do it again. Uh, how, how can you say that that represents any kind of learning? Um, the British Army itself imposes some order. Um, people like General Tudor institute a creeping barrage, for example, on the first day of the Somme in a couple of areas, a kind of creeping barrage is, is used. Um, GHQ finally latch onto this about in July uh, uh, 1916 and issue an order saying there's this thing called the creeping barrage, uh, but they don't. They don't insist that it be carried out. They don't supervise its instruction. This is what is different, I think, in 1918. In 1918, when there is a tactical innovation, the British Army will get to know about it. GHQ will issue a pamphlet saying artillery and the infantry is the latest stuff. And that's a world away from 1916 so if you want to say the end battles of 1918 are better fought than the battles, say, of 1915, the answer is yes. 
does that represent a straight line learning curve? No, it does not. Uh, it represents learning. It represents forgetting. It represents incompetence. It represents impatience. Um, but what it doesn't do is represent any kind of thing you could plot on a graph. I mean, it's interesting. Um, when I'm approached with with the subject, um, I kind of pass it off by suggesting that the Germans learn to lose. Um, but they do it in such a way that they push all their pressure on to defending. So <clears throat> they'll they'll defend hard. That's with counterattacks and support. And, you know, they will be tough in their counterattacks. Um, of course, that puts me at loggerheads immediately with the people who see themselves as um, an initiados of um, the SS and the Waffen-SS, these units that are glory fighting. And all I see them doing is running headlong into battle and literally dissolving themselves into a pool of blood because they, they, they go to war and and the whole process is how much can die. And it's Nazi logic to to come to the, the notion that if you spill blood, you somehow make the nation more powerful. And to a certain extent, you can see that happening with the First World War generals in both the British and the Germans. I don't, you, you know, on the, on the other hand, I see all of these um, scholarly works where they're suggesting that because the Germans have issued all of these instruction manuals, training manuals and the rep and the like, I don't actually see an awful lot of learning. I see them doing the same thing time after time after time after time after time again throughout the whole yeah. war. Yeah, I was reading an account today of the 12th SS um, attacking the Canadians uh, in Normandy and uh, they run at their anti-tank gun line and are slaughtered. Uh, if that represents any kind of anything other than madness, I've... I've, I've I've not grasped it. it it's insane. Um, they lose a, a thousand casualties that day, I think. Um, there is no hope of them ever getting anywhere near the gun line. Um, I mean, if that represents the epitome of soldiering, then we all should give it up. Um, it's, yeah, it's I mean, I, this, is what I see with, this is what I see with Montgomery. Um, he almost teases the Germans to be extra defensive and come out of their foxholes and go crazy counterattack. And he's slaughtering them. And, you know, people say, well, Montgomery wasn't successful. But those German division, those armoured divisions that went into Normandy in June 1944, there wasn't very much left after Falaise. No, no there was not. And, and to be counting tanks on two hands and not going much more than 10,000 in soldiers, some of those divisions were completely trashed. And, and that is a, that's an indictment of just how bad the Germans were at fighting modern war and how excellent Montgomery was at getting the British and the American troops to fight this new modern war. So going on that point, do you think, do you think Monty's... Um, reputation should be restored? I, I do. I, I, I'm puzzled about why it, it is in decline, in a sense. I mean, he won every battle he fought, except with the possible exception of Arnhem, and he almost won that one. Um, he's 
an interesting general. He's, I mean, when Alan Brook and Churchill come out to the desert to make a change, um, they've they've had enough of Vulcan Lake. Um, the two candidates are Gott and Montgomery, and uh, Churchill chooses Gott, who is then tragically killed in a plane crash. Um, and Gott and Montgomery are two interesting examples of people who learnt from the First World War, but they learnt quite different things. Um, Gott learnt that we must Britain must never suffer the kind of slaughter they did in the First World War. And the answer to that was extreme mobility. Uh, it's Gott um, and others who break up the divisional structure of the British Army in the Western Desert and reduce it to columns. These are the drop columns that contain a few tanks, a few guns, a few infantry, a few this and that. And Rommel picks them off one after the other uh, with the greatest uh, of ease. Montgomery also learns from the First World War, but he learns quite different lessons from God. He is not against attrition. He dare not use the word attrition uh, with people like Churchill around. I mean, the A word is banned. Um, you will not say it. But in fact, if you look at his battles, uh, Alamein, starting with Alamein, that's what he's doing. Um, he starts off with Alamein, using the infantry to blast and the artillery to blast a hole for the armour. Um, as I say in my book, the armour won't play. The armoured commanders, Lumsden and so on, are not going to do it. Uh, they've charged Rommel's anti-tank guns one too many times. They're not going to do it again. Um, so Montgomery, in, in a sense, has to use what he calls crumbling tactics. And one of the great crumbling divisions at Alamein is the 9th Australian uh, Division. And crumbling is just another word for attrition. Uh, they're eating away at the front-line German soldiery, inducing Rommel into piecemeal counterattacks and wiping those counterattacks out with their artillery and their anti-tank guns. Um, in the end, Rommel, it's not so much that the armour advances, but Rommel retreats. And Montgomery follows him up with great caution, um, knowing that the 8th Army cannot afford uh, any more reverses. So Montgomery is not going to give them any. Uh, does that mean he goes dashing madly across the desert? No, it does not. Uh, he is very careful, he is very cautious, uh, but the Benghazi handicap, the race to and from Benghazi back to Cairo, is over. Montgomery's tactics make sure that his administrative tail, his uh, artillery, um, his anti-tank guns are always present close enough to the front that if Rommel turns on him, he'll get a bloody nose as Rommel does uh, on several occasions. What does Monty do in Normandy? Um, much the same sort of stuff. If you look at his battles, does anything go right on D-Day? Does anything go as Monty predicted? No, not really. Um, the pegging out ground far inland by armoured columns doesn't happen anywhere. 
uh, Bradley doesn't even uh, produce an armored column to peg out anything uh, for the American First Army. Uh, but is Montgomery worried about that? Not at all. He's got six or seven miles inland. Um, they haven't pushed him into the sea. Uh, there is no uh, uh, crisis. Has he captured Caen on the first day? No, he hasn't. Does he care? Not much. Uh, the Air Force cares because he hasn't got Carpaque Airport, but no one else cares very much. Certainly not Monty. And then if you look at his battles from then on, Epsom, Charnwood, all of them, Goodwood, totalised, tractable, they all add up to versions uh, of a kind of Alamein where you use the best weapon the British Army has, the artillery. It's got the best artillery of any army in the Second World War, I would argue. Uh, It can bring down the fire of divisions and corps on single targets faster than any other army, including the Americans. Um, This is the weapon that Monty will use. And if the Panzer divisions like to keep chewing into this stuff, fine. Sooner or later, they'll crack. He knows that. Uh, They don't crack at Epsom. They don't crack at Goodwood. Uh, But sooner or later, they crack. And he's got them. And then we get this weird debate at Falaise about how many people escape, how how many Germans escape. This is, again, quite, in many ways, a ridiculous argument. No Western army ever in the Second World War ever encircled an enemy to the extent of annihilation. None. It never happened. It didn't happen in Italy. It didn't happen in the desert. Um, it might have happened on the Russian front, but we're talking uh, about allied armies here and the war in Africa and uh, Western Europe. It just doesn't happen. Um, and there are all sorts of excuses. The Canadians and the Poles were not, not quite as experienced as other units in the Second Army. But frankly, uh, if you look at other attempts at encirclement, they don't work. Rommel never encircled the Eighth Army, for example, ever. Um, this is Rommel we're, we're speaking of. Uh, Montgomery doesn't encircle Rommel at Marath. Um, they don't quite pull the deal off in Italy, though they come close and uh, 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 Clark probably missed a, uh, a, an opportunity there um, to capture Rome instead. So the fact that it's not happening at Fallows, there shouldn't be hand-wringing over this. The German army in the West has been wiped out. What more do you want? Uh, What more can a general do? Um, I'm wondering, why is it that Montgomery has such an indifferent press? Is it the fact that he's rather a bounder? Is it the fact that he's a self-publicist? He's all of those things. But who cares about that? I mean, what we care about uh, is is he an efficient general? Yes, he is. I mean, the interesting thing about, you know, self-publicising generals is there can't be any worse than Omar Bradley, and and um, who, who even even gets his minion, that guy Hanson, to run around trashing Montgomery at every moment, saying this, that and the other. Um, and then um, there's... Uh, Monty and, and, did it with... 
with more flair than most. That's I think that's that's the problem with Monty. He wears funny hats. He he, he he's a strange little person. Um, I think what happened with Monty. I think what happened with Montgomery was that he went too far with Eisenhower in that public criticism. When Eisenhower was, when, when Eisenhower was being regarded as Mr. Lovey-Dovey, President, we all love you, although, although you know, Eisenhower's record of trashing Britain, British power, wasn't just in the Second World War. I mean, he did it again in Suez. So it's not like, it's not like he had a great interest in Britain. I think people believe more in the story of Eisenhower than his actualities. Um, as to Rommel, it always struck me with Rommel that the only time he's any good is when the enemy is not very good. Um, and when I say not very good, it, it, you know, he's running around shooting at, running around shooting up the, the rear airs of divisions and he captures the 51st Highland Division in Calais. But let's face it, he's not exactly got much opposition in front of him. And, and and when people stand up to him, he he collapses, and he collapsed in so many. I mean, the only thing is, let's dial back. The only thing he does well is against incompetence. He's 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 quite good at fighting, not very much, in the Western Desert at, at, at various times. But when he gets up against somebody like with the ruthlessness, and and the organisational ability. Uh, of Montgomery, he has no answer at all. Um, and it's no use saying, uh, I think, that uh, anybody could have won the Battle of Alamein. You had such superiority. Uh, Britain had had superiority in the desert before. Uh, at Operation Crusader, for example, uh, in '42, and it availed them nothing. Um, they had uh, superiority at Gazala, the same thing. It's what you do with the stuff you have. And I don't think anybody could have won that battle at Alamein but Montgomery. Only he has the sort of tidy, incisive mind that can bring that sort of organisation to bear. Yeah, I think what what happens in Normandy, um, to take your um, findings further, is... The Germans are just not up to modern war. I mean, Rundstedt doesn't know what he's what's coming his way. He's got Rommel, who's an incredibly political general. Forget all the stories about what a nice man he was. He was an incredibly political general, and forever stabbing people in the back. So he's got the, you've got a, a crazy dual command system, and then on top of that, you've you know, they obviously many of the German generals referred to Hitler and blaming him for for all of their ills. Um, most of that is nonsense. I mean, the, the surprising thing is, they say that the, Hitler never let the reserves go. But if you look how many reserves were let loose, they were they were all over the place. It was just their misuse and their poor control of them. Um, it just strikes me that the story that Montgomery got was, and is still getting. It's just such. Well, it's just so crazy. You'd think, you'd think scholars wouldn't fall for it, but they seem to. Well, you read some books on Normandy. I won't mention which ones, but uh, you find that uh, the uh, uh, that the Germans have such superior weaponry, that their infantry is such skilled tactics, 
that they are so uh, vicious, such vicious fighters, that without knowing the conclusion, you must conclude that the Germans win. Um, is the only conclusion possible from a, a, a number of books. And yet, of course, they lose. And they lose in actually quite rapid time. Uh, we hear about the stalemate in Normandy. It lasted 11 weeks. Uh, in First World War times, this is grease lightning. It's not a stalemate. Um, it, it's, it's very rapid indeed. Um, this, I might say, is the subject of my next book. Normandy. Okay, so that that that's just made the, the the last question of the of the day unnecessary. So we'll <laughs> we can drop that one. So I'm going to move us on to actual academic military history, if I may, uh, and I want to refer to Hughes Philpot, Modern Military History, two thousand and six. Uh, Joanna Burke discussed the new military history. Um, I'm a big fan of that chapter, actually. Um, do you think it's time for a new military history for the 21st century? Um, look, I, th- I think new histories are evolving as we speak. Um, uh, Amy Fox uh, writing about about how armies learn and so on. I think there are new areas opening up all the time. Uh, Joanna, who I know very well indeed, uh opened up new fields with their own books, uh, Dismembering the Mail, a very uncomfortable title, uh, and uh, uh, Intimate History of Killing. So I think it's, it, it's, it's, it continues to evolve. I mean, people, crusty old people like myself will continue to write um, maybe straight-line military historians' uh, history, but others, we have Carolyn Holbrook in Australia, who's written an excellent history of Anzac Day, which reveals not only a lot about Anzac Day, but a lot about the campaign as well. Uh, so that kind of thing is happening all the time. And uh, I, I, I just I look forward to it evolving in different ways, in, in ways perhaps we can't think of now. But um, it's exciting, I think, um, some of this new military history that's already being written. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm kind of, um, I don't know, what's the word, pumped. There's been so much uh, in, in this work that I've been doing with new books, being able to read um, the book 1917, I found it invigorating to see how young people are doing so much dynamic research. And I also see it on Twitter. And obviously, as I troll a lot of the articles, as you do still when with the work you're doing, you just see the the sheer level of interesting content out there, especially from Great War Group and and other organisations that are pushing more and more good quality uh, content. Um, I think, yeah, the boundaries are expanding and, and we all should welcome that. Yeah, uh, I think that's good. Yeah. Um, turning to one but last, um, so we have to be politically topical at some point, uh, turning to myths, Brexit, the politicisation of British exceptionalism in war and their impact on Britain's continental commitment during this present war in the Ukraine. What's your opinion about the proliferation of proliferation of popular writing in this age of global Britain? Has it undermined the traditional influence of academic military history on strategic thinking? It's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. My, my goodness. Yeah, I don't know where to start there. 
Um, Brexit and British exceptionalism is interesting. Um, and part of the reason I wrote the book and called it Conquer We Must is that it seemed to me that of all the Western allies anyway, I don't know as much about uh, Russia or the Soviet Union to make an opinion, but of the Western allies, the most implacable in both world wars was Britain. Uh, I think some in Germany knew that and regarded the 4th of August and the 3rd of September as utter disasters for their country, uh, which indeed they were. Um, Britain is the only great power to fight those wars from beginning to end without a serious disturbance at home. Um, there is something very bloody-minded about the British when, when they are effectively led, uh, which could bring us to Brexit, <laughs> but uh, uh, perhaps not. Um, when they are effectively led, uh, I mean, the change in the country that saw Chamberlain swept aside after his recent triumph at Munich, um, where he was cheered in the street, he wasn't cheered for very long when people realised that that uh, agreement had been made at a great moral cost to Britain. And uh, they now they were now, Britain was now giving away parts of other people's country. Uh, and that was a step too far for most. So that you see the vote in the House of Commons when the House of Commons voted, counted for something, um, you see that vote, I think, is reflecting uh, a widespread disturbance in the population that they were not being effectively led, and that this just wasn't good enough, um, that they demanded sterner leadership. And they certainly got it with Churchill. But you can look at the same phenomenon in uh, 1916, <laughs> where Asquith has led them uh, into war, uh, but proved not to be a war leader. Uh, I'm, I'm rather fond of Asquith, so I'm, I'm rather uh, hesitant to criticise him too far. But the society woman who jabbed at him, do you take an interest in the war, Mr Asquith, uh, in 1915, had a point. Um, he was rather a passive war leader, and the country does a determined that they deserved somebody sterner and Lloyd George got the job. Uh, so in both world wars, we see Britain producing more resolute leadership in the middle of a, uh, of a crisis in both wars. Uh, Lloyd George coming to power, this war will be fought to a knockout blow. Churchill coming to power in 1940, you ask, what is my policy Victory, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror. Um, that's the kind of leadership that got Britain through those wars. Um, maybe it's the kind of leadership that's lamentably lacking at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a kicker at the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean... Post-Brexit, with wars going on then and wars going on now, there seems to be a lack of um, backbone. 
Yes, there's a lack of focus, I think. Uh, um, let's, let's not talk about Ukraine when we can talk about small boats in the channel. I mean, we, we've had this lack, same lack of focus in Australia. In fact, you are, to our shame, uh, with refugees developing what is called the Australian model. That is, you won't settle them and you insist they be settled in third countries. Um, it's, it's a shameful path we've led there. Uh, and it's, it's, it's lamentable that you are following that path. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, we're, I'm thinking here of military history. I mean, I see the politics all the time and I've been isolated by the Brexit vote, as many others have. I mean, I wasn't even allowed to vote. Um, and, of course, it was quite something to see, in particular, Australian students coming to Britain to study being given the vote, whereas people like myself who paid our taxes and were part of it and still had a passport, we were denied. Um, and I don't understand that logic, never have. But I'm just thinking, in terms of the military history, of how military history has pushed us towards certain ways of thinking strategically, I was thinking more in line of what what's your impression of a tank that shakes the crew to death and 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 two ships floating around the globe without aircraft pretending to be aircraft carriers without aircraft it all strikes me as very odd yeah it is and and look moving back to the second world war for for just a second um when uh britain had various choices to make 1941, 1942, about their Eastern Empire, Malaya, Singapore, even India. Uh, what they chose, really, in terms of materiel, uh, was to fight the war in the Mediterranean and in the North Sea and in the skies over Europe. In other words, they made a conscious choice for Europe um, it was a European strategy that they followed, uh, that Churchill followed from the day he was installed uh, until the end of the war. Um, it's, it's rather surprising to read Alan Brooks' diary on the fall of Singapore. Oh, well, he said we couldn't have held it anyway. I mean, there is no grinding and gnashing of teeth here. Uh, and in fact, they couldn't have held it, and Alan Brooke was realistically realistic enough to know that. But given a choice, Britain in the Second World War chose Europe as its sphere of operation, as its sphere of where it could exert some influence. And partly, Montgomery's strategy in 1944 is designed to give Britain a larger place uh, at the peace table, which they think, of course, is going to be uh, upon them, and a greater say in the structure of post-war Europe. Um, so if we think of the Second World War as a global war, but in a sense for Britain, it's a European war because that's where their priorities lay. And these are Churchill's priorities, uh, I might add. Sure, he wants to hang on to the empire, but given the choice of where to send stuff, it's going to Europe, folks, uh, and it's not going anywhere else. So uh, given all that, uh, current global Britain is rather an oddity. 
Yeah, I, that's why I was coming to the fact that we've, you know, Britain has a history, and okay, you shan't, you shouldn't just run to a history in terms of strategic thinking, but it should influence, you know, it should offer guidance in terms of direction and and the way things should be. And it just strikes me that we've kind of, uh, as as a British strategy, thrown it all away and gone into various avenues, which none of it appears joined up. Um, and if asked for by a you know asked for an opinion by a military historian, it's always the same. Nothing seems to add up. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Um, I mean, both world wars were fought, if you will, over the old balance of power uh, reasons. It mattered to Britain who held the balance of power in Europe. It mattered that they did. They held the balance, and when anyone threatened it, then they were in trouble uh, with Britain. So rather than thinking of Britain as something distinctive from Europe, if you read enough military history, you think of Britain as something intimately involved in Europe, whether it wants to be or not. Um, Even Salisbury's splendid isolation period wasn't all that isolated. Actually, it wasn't all that splendid either, (laughs) come to think of it. But um, it's... It's the intimate relationship with Britain and Europe that should strike a military historian. It's always been there, and it hasn't gone away. Now, it's fascinating that we've got this upsurge of interest in military history, and yet we've got the, the, no one seems to be drawing those conclusions like you have, which is what I found interesting in, in your book and why I've kind of posited questions about uh, European commitment. Um, and so, yes, I, you know, I, I, I found everything that you were saying was so much of a, um, uh, a strategy or a process of strategic thinking, even in civil military relations. Okay, we've not gone down that question, but I was going to suggest that even down to civil military relations, people understood the nature of British security depended on a balance of power in Europe that didn't threaten Britain. Yeah, that's right. There's no uh, military political split uh, on that issue uh, in either world, in either war. Uh, I mean, Brooke and Churchill don't spend their time arguing with each other, though you would would get another view from Brooke's diary. They actually spend a lot of it arguing with the Americans over what is going to happen to Europe um, uh, after the war and what kind of figure Britain uh, will cut. The same uh, applies in 1918. I mean, Lloyd George is keen on the armistice, which is in fact uh, wrongly named. It's a surrender on terms. It's not an armistice. The Germans don't have any option here. Um, He's keen on that because he sees the British army as the great victor of 1918 and thinks, I think rightly, that he can cut a considerable figure at the peace conference, uh, which, which, which he does, and help shape post-war Europe, uh, not as much as he thought, uh, due to factors perhaps beyond his control. But it's Europe that is at the heart of these people's thinking. Lloyd George, 
uh, Allenbrook, Churchill, um, Eden, all of them. There's no split there. It just seems to have been forgotten. Yeah. Uh, Robin, I, I think we've talked long enough and I'm, I'm sure you're I think you you need a rest from the questioning. You know, it's getting a bit. Oh, yeah, I probably do for that. It's been fun, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to draw it to a close, but I think you should just once again mention what your next project's going to be, so um, listeners can hear that. Yeah, uh, my next book, which uh, I have uh, signed up with with Yale, uh, is for a campaign history of Normandy, uh, which will include both uh, the. British Army and the American one. Uh, I'm interested in a number of books, often written by Americans, that only do one or the other. Um, the Americans are as fascinated by Montgomery, it seems to me, as any people on earth. Uh, but mine will be about both armies, and uh, I hope to bring some new perspectives to that work. It's too early, though, to say what they might be. Well, I'm sure I'm going to be reading it, and hopefully, w- w- when it's out, we can do this again. <laughs> yes, okay. it's been fun, Philip. <laughs> Perhaps yeah. about the German air raids. So, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, thank you very much, and goodbye. Yeah, goodbye, Philip. Thank you.